Welcome to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. Hello, today is Tuesday, November 6, 2023. I'm Carl Michael Henneking, and I will be your host for today's show. In the last episode of the Untitled Investment Talk, we delved into recent developments within the crypto payment sector, particularly focusing on the use of stablecoins for payments. We discussed the anticipated impact of PayPal's PYUSD stablecoin on the market, recently announced strategic partnerships by Circle, and a few other significant developments. Today, I'd like to take a closer look at a specific segment of the stablecoin space, euro-based stablecoins. Currently, the 125 billion global stablecoin market is strongly dominated by US dollar-based stablecoins. It was Tether's USDT and Circle's USDC at the forefront, uh, whereas US euro-based stablecoins, such as Stathys, EuroS, EuroC by Circle, and Tether Euro represent niche markets, holding less than 0.3% share of the total market capitalization. So why is this the case? And what does the future hold for euro-based stablecoins? Bright and shiny or staying tiny? To answer this question, who better to have as a guest than the CEO of Stasis, the leading European stablecoin? Welcome, Gregory Klumov, to this show. Hello, happy to be here. Great to have you on the show. And let's immediately jump into the question. And let's start with Eurostasis. Eurostasis is the leading euro-based stablecoin with a market cap of around 132 million US dollars and a trading volume of more than 1 billion USDs in the last 12 months. When and why did you and your team build Stasis? So very good question. So it all started 2017 when I realized that the market lacked transparent stablecoin solution. And I wanted to change that. So I put up a team that has diverse expertise and track record and launched this starting with a regulatory friendly product. So we educated regulators in different jurisdictions and chose Malta as a starting point, um, which uh, turned out to roll out the world's first uh, regulation of digital assets. Um, and then uh, started this whole European crypto legalization movement, which is now um, culminating with a nationwide uh, Mika regime. And uh, how many people are working with Stasis at the moment? And, and what kind of competences do you need to run a, a stablecoin business? So it takes a uh, intersection of multiple expertises, actually, because you need to have technical, legal, financial, uh, counterparty management, risk management expertises uh, for the team. Uh, we are 30 people and actually expanding uh, further. And uh, we are compliant to operate across 175 countries. So we have a unique edge over many other providers with the product we develop. And, and how much does it cost, let's say, an operating cost yearly to, to run such a stablecoin? Manageable. So it was quite tough during the era of negative interest rates. But now uh, the interest rates have climbed back. So it's a viable and really appealing business model. And how are you funded? We had the initial partner funding us, which was our primary custodian back at the time. And then we bootstrapped and then brought in revenue. So the company never had external funding. We are literally self-funded. Cool. And, and how did you personally enter the crypto space? 
I worked uh, in hedge funds uh, during most of my professional career. So I spent more than 15 years trading a global macro book for proprietary desks for uh, commercial banks and uh, hedge funds. But I'm a computer scientist by my first education. So uh, I understand networks, I understand tech. And when global financial crisis took place, I was looking for an exposure to hedge excessive monetary policy. And Bitcoin naturally caught my attention in 2013 when there was the first spike of prices. And then I started monitoring the market before deciding finally switching full-time to, to work in the space. And when was this? This was 2017. Like... Ah, okay, good. So with the launch of Stasis. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, for our listeners, so just for clarification, in this talk, we are focusing on private euro-based stablecoins not on CBDCs, so central bank digital currencies or the digital euro. We'll dedicate a special episode to CBDCs at a later date. The euro is the second most important currency in the fiat monetary system, commanding a 20 to 30% share, depending on the market you're looking at, be it foreign exchange, global payments, international loans or debt securities. Surprisingly, or perhaps not, the crypto space is currently dominated by USD, US dollars. I mean, although euro stablecoins outperform other alternative stablecoins, including tokenized versions of the British pound, the yen, the RMDB, or any other currencies, I think they still represent a niche market with a market cap of around 270 million US dollars, which is a fraction of the 123 billion for USD-based stablecoins. However, I think for many reasons it's likely, or if I phrase it more conservatively, there's hope that this will change in the future. But before we dive deeper into the reasons why the future might be bright for Euro-based stablecoins, we need to understand their primary benefits first. So kind of over to Gregory here. Why do we need Euro-based stablecoins in the first place? Well, first of all, it's a huge market. So around 20% of all crypto traders, users are located out of Europe. And these people, we in Europe, we think in Euro terms. We have Euro salaries, Euro expenses, Euro prices and everything. So why would we take exposure to other currency like dollar if we want to stay in our home currency trading environment? Second, and I reflected on this a lot, is... Uh, all new markets usually start getting priced in dollars. If you think capital markets, equity of Thailand, Russia, Brazil, China, initially when they just started 10, 20, 30 years ago, they were priced in dollars before finally uh, moving to their local currencies and the most volume uh, flipped the USD equivalent. Crypto market is no different. It's a new market that was born, say, 2009, but actually the institutions started taking notice 2000. 15, 16, and uh, more recently, 2023, because few things happened, right? Uh, regulation came on board. Um, uh, people uh, uh, determined how to value different projects, started to uh, notice the difference between public blockchains, private blockchains, Bitcoin, other assets. So I anticipate that uh, this gap will massively converge. I mean, the share of euro-denominated products and assets in the crypto space uh, relative to the uh, share of euro in the capital market. Okay, and what are typical use cases for a euro-based stablecoin? Are they different from US-based stablecoins or do you think are more or less the same type of use cases in general? 
so far. Uh, it's uh, very typical. So just a low volatility asset that allows you to store some treasury funds, send money cross-border, pay salaries in a fixed uh, currency. There are also DeFi markets, right? You can get a passive yield in DeFi. There are counterparties who support Euro stable coins for card products. So you could have, you could run a Visa or MasterCard plastic or Apple Pay product that is toppable with a Euro stable coin. And then when you consume from that card, it's in Europe, right? It's natively charged one to one. So all these use cases are slowly but surely coming along. And with regulatory clarity starting from next year, things will accelerate massively. And among these use cases, so if we say we have the more crypto-related use cases like trading and DeFi on the one hand side, and let's say more traditional or payment-related uh, use cases on the other side, uh, how is the percentage? What is what is currently the, the dominant uh, usage of stablecoins in general and the euro stablecoin in particular? The dominant use case is the collateral for trading, for derivatives trading or some DeFi trading, for treasury cash management and for on and off ramping. Because we run the most efficient, I would say, on and off ramping infrastructure in the whole space because it's fully electronic. We support onboarding both individuals and institutional customers in less than a couple hours in several cases. Customers can send us any non-USD currency, which is important. So we started supporting some exotic currencies like AED and Dirhams or Thai Bats and some others. And very efficiently and uh, at a very like a fraction of the other market participant costs, we can convert them into digital asset legitimately. But more importantly is that no uh, bank will ever blacklist or refuse to transact with us. Because we are a regulated counterparty, we have external AML audit, which is done yearly, and we processed more than a billion of such transfers to numerous banks globally without any hassle. Are there any statistics available kind to, to segregate that tokens are used for means of payments, whereas a means for investment? Because I researched for them. I know the uh, trading volume versus the market cap of a stable coin could be an indicator. If there are any tangible data available, I couldn't find any. That, that's why I'm asking. It's not easy to do that, but it's possible. So the main benefit of the blockchain that it disrupts clearing custody and settlement services in a user-friendly and public transparent way. So you can monitor on-chain activity and with a, a little bit of research, figure out what's actually happening there, who has mm -hmm. exposure to what. But in a general sense, I can tell that these are the small, medium businesses, crypto-related, who either hold their treasury funds in Europe because they're based in Europe, or they use it to send a salary to their European workers. Makes a lot of sense. Dow Treasury might be another application, FX markets, securitization of assets, if we look a little bit into the future. But I think that somehow leads me to the question, or I think what, what a lot of our listeners would like to know, or what I'm asked uh, very frequently, is how do stablecoin companies or projects make money? How do they monetize? I mean, there are kind of three broad categories. One is you benefit from the interest on your deposits. The other category would be service fees. And the third one would be investments. At least I know this for, for USDC. 
and Tether did some research and publication on this recently. How is this with how is this with stages? How how do you monetize? Yeah, so very good question. So the interest rates have uh, increased significantly since uh, COVID time, and finally positive in euro terms. So yield from reserves is the biggest margin, and say it's uh, one of the purest margin because everything that we make from those reserves we uh, can count as our bottom line, tax-free, which is a big thing. The next revenue stream for us is the on and off-ramp business for different exotic currencies, which some people have a hard time accessing on and off-ramps in. And the third is what we started experimenting recently is narrow banking. So we can get you an IBAN with a central bank that is very limited credit risk, right? You can be sure that there is no asset liability mismatch on the bank's balance sheet. Yeah. The run like a Silicon Valley bank will not happen to your account. So this is something really powerful and only possible in Europe right now. It's not possible in the US, the narrow banking product. But in Europe, the, there are two central banks that are happy to work and provide such accounts for a licensed entity like ours. Yeah, who is this? It's a Lithuanian central bank and Swiss central bank. And they started piloting this product just last few years. So it's a very new thing the market hasn't figured out yet. I saw this in your transparency report that the Swiss central bank was, was mentioned there with, uh, with an account. That's, that's quite interesting. And I think you pride yourself of being one of the leaders in terms of transparency of stablecoins, transparency of the reserves. And let's dive a little bit deeper into this topic. First of all, how are your reserves composed currently? Currently, it's 100% cash. We quite successfully navigated the four cycles, the falling interest rates, the zero interest rate, the negative interest rate, and the mm. rising interest rate cycle. And uh, now it's 100% cash, ready to be deployed in some bonds, but waiting for the interest rates to stabilize. Okay, but but I mean earlier, like 2021 or so, you had also certain exposure to bonds. This is correct, and you changed correct. then because of the interest rate change. Yeah, okay. So you are that that means if we look into the future, you're adapting towards the macro financial financial environment with what you do with your reserves. Is correct? Yeah, but we do it in a very risk averse way. So yeah. we are want to make sure that if people come, like if everybody comes to liquidate their stable coins will be there to facilitate all of, all of that uh, capital. So it's very low risk, uh, low duration government bonds that can be easily sold for cash any day. Mm, I think we'll talk about Mika later. There are certain requirements for stablecoin issuers, right? Which go into exactly the same direction as that's what you were, that's what you, you were men mentioning. But um, again, one of your USPs is transparency of reserves. How do you achieve that? How do you make your reserves transparent? Yeah, this is something I'm quite proud of because we are the first in the world to bring a big four auditor to the board to audit a crypto project. We persuaded them that this is the activity that is really appealing for them to bring more customers in and that proved itself right. So it's a job they've been doing for us for all these five years. They have a real-time access to all our accounts. And potentially they can do even daily uh, verification of all our reserves. Obviously the market does not require us to do it daily, but the fact that we were the first to bring reputable name from traditional markets and audit business to this space in the middle of our ICO bubble burst speaks for itself. 
Okay, I think this is like four pillars. So you have daily reports, you have monthly reports, you have yearly audits, and there's a fourth component, which I currently I don't recall. But, but these are like four legs. Is this correct? Yeah, and also we pass external email audits by a different mm -hmm. auditor. And the regulator did a third-party technical audit of our platform, which is also very important. This is why I say we are the only legal euro stablecoin or digital asset in Europe because other market participants under the e-money license regime didn't have that requirement. Under the FA regime in Malta, we had to pass a third-party technical audit, which regulator looked at. I dive a little bit uh, more into the U.S. Um, dollar-based stable coins recently, and only the only one who provided like audited financial reports was Circle, and the last one was for 2021. No, for 2020. You have one live for 2021. I saw, and you also make your, your banks transparent, right? Normally, you just read, okay, the fund lie with regulated financial institutions. Uh, with you, we know where, where the money really is. Okay, yeah, that, that's cool. And I think that, that's really innovative. Next to transparency or besides transparency, what, what other key success factors do you consider important for a euro-based stablecoin? Well, the market clearly evolved over the last few years, right? It's not just the stablecoin token on a blockchain with some auditor on board. It takes a bunch of product features that require the product to be successful. First, let's say, is the platform to onboard customers. It has to be convenient, efficient, fully automated. You need to make sure the cost to onboard customers is minimal, not impacting the bottom line. And you need to ensure it's fully digital. You need to onboard both individuals and uh, institutional customers, which is uh, different scenarios, right? Then you need to, to have proper counterparties. So you need to have accounts, preferably at the central bank, because then you can inject transactions into direct direct banking network like SEP or SWIFT with a minimal friction. Then you need to be uh, listed at some uh, crypto exchanges. You need to have liquidity in DeFi and uh, your pools have to be routed through DeFi aggregators like Paraswap, OneInch and others. So it, it, the product has evolved significantly uh, since we started. We are in a never-ending race to build it uh, even more superior to um, other solutions out there to, bring, to continue bringing and retaining customers. Because switching costs now in DeFi has decreased significantly. You can switch from one product into another with a click of a button for a few dollar on-chain commission. What, where, where we definitely bring customers is in our on and off ramp product and in our institutional grade quality narrow banking infrastructure. Brings me maybe to the core question of the whole conversation, which everyone want, wants to know. You are in the market since 2017, 2018. Again, the euro in fiat money terms is 20 to 30% market share. You said, okay, it will take time because the US dollar is always in the lead if it comes to developing new markets. But why hasn't the euro-based stable coin system picked up speed so far? What are the main reasons for that? Well, again, the products are not good enough to switch for, for consumers to switch yet. So think of a Uber and traditional taxi department line, previous products, right? Then say, imagine you land somewhere, you need to call some landline. And figure out the number, explain where you're located, explain where you want to go, and then figure out the payment. 
Now Uber does it for you with a one tap. So this is a, an example of how a superior product disrupts the existing market. And it's always like that. If you want to disrupt any market, you need to make sure your product is 10 times better. So, so far, the Euro stable coins that are on the market have not been providing uh, substantial benefits to, for, for the users to switch. And to be honest, I mean, dollar stable coins have been working just fine until the early, early start of this year before the U.S. banking system had its shock. So now, finally, people are waking up and looking for alternatives, and that's a good thing. And this additional product feature sets on top of what we already have will make our product superior to others and appealing to switch from dollar stablecoin space. We already accumulated more than 700 million worth of pent-up demand for the product to be uh, collateral for derivatives trading, for example. It's when users want to trade, say, USD-denominated Bitcoin futures or perpetuals, but have collateral deposited in U.S. terms. And that's because this collateral will be completely isolated from U.S. market or U.S. Uh, federal court system because it just doesn't have any exposure to it, right? We don't have any dollar accounts or dollar counterparties, American banks. So we don't care what U.S. says or does. And it looks like U.S. continues to be quite hostile towards crypto projects, while on the other side of the pond in Europe, there is a regulatory clarity with the Mika line. Do you think, I mean, we talked about it, we have this kind of crypto-related use case and the more, let's say, real-world-related use case with online payments, remittance, what else, B2B cross-border transfers. Do you think these real-world use cases benefit more from Mikar and in, in the future will benefit the uptake of the Euro stablecoin? Or do you think it's more in the crypto world where the main use cases lie? Uh, as things stand right now, I think the whole world will transition to Euro-denominated uh, stablecoin products. No because of the security and protection uh, and regulatory clarity mm. and it is there against uh, the, the dollar market. That's a strong statement. I think we'll come back to, to Mika in, in a bit and can elaborate a, a bit on what the requirements are there for stablecoin companies. But before we do this, I come back to your name, I think, or brand name. Stasis, I, I think, means stable, like in a, a stable equilibrium state. and and. I don't know. I read it somewhere. It's derived from physics. Is this correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was uh, the thinking. Provide the stability of the product being connected to the traditional capital markets grid with an institutional grade quality without any conflict of interest, which is also important. So we don't trade our stable coin against clients, do not involve in any market making activities. So our job is to make sure we've got reserves backing the product. And technically, how do you ensure stability? And, and I mean, how do you manage potential defects, right? Which you had in the, in the past. Or that you yeah. recover very fast. How is this done? Very good question. So again, our job is to make sure we onboard customers fast and efficient enough and move their money back and forth. The, the product that's trading on the market can de-peg. In fact, I think the de-pegging is not the correct word mm -hmm. because... People think of it as a DPEG, but actually it's another asset that trades on a new market. The price on it can vary depending on the supply and demand. If a stablecoin is operational properly as a business, as it's intended to operate, then the price 
well, the, the market arbitrageurs will figure it out. Why is a BAF parity? Will be somebody who will sell to exploit the difference. If it, if it drops below, somebody who has an account with us will, will buy it, I'm sure, to, to materialize that discount. So I think the fully, freely functional markets is the key to success. And the clear terms of business, how we operate, is a part of that. So if you onboard to us uh, a personal account or institutional account, we'll tell you what documents will to supply. And if they're okay, you're free to transact and uh, exploit uh, that nuances and that arbitrage. You operate out of Malta. Why did you choose that jurisdiction? You mentioned it in the beginning already, right? This is because of the favorable regulatory environment? So the local government invited me um, to be a consultant for their upcoming digital asset uh, legal framework. We published two books on digital asset regulation. Like I said, this is how I started the company. I started with a thesis that this product and this market has to be regulated. So I guess I was just really forward thinking about it when everybody was rushing around uh, with the ICOs, et cetera, and the new unregulated Wild West. I was quite thinking about how it should work in a regulated, from a regulated standpoint, in a regulated financial infrastructure. And Malta was really adapted to that when they listened to what my team suggested and implemented part of that. So VFA Act. Became, became quite handy back then because it uh, gave clarity what could be done and at what costs and at, at what rules, right? Some of that legislative fact was transformed into MICA, which is now becoming a nationwide thing for Europe. It's not perfect. It has its flaws, right? But still, it's the only and the best what's available in the um, biggest economies out there. Uh, okay, that's good. And uh, let's talk about MICA here market in crypto asset uh, regulation. The regulation defines very specific requirements for stablecoin projects and companies. So in Mika language, we don't talk about stablecoins, but about e-money tokens, which are kind of stablecoins backed by a single fiat currency. And the other category is asset reference tokens, which can be backed by a combination of fiat currencies, commodities, or, or any other, other asset. I think the most relevant part of regulation is on these e-money tokens. How do you think Mika will change or alter the stablecoin landscape in Europe? Or won't uh, it change so, at all? Yeah, very good question. So first of all, it will open up the market. There were so many conflicting statements all these years from different uh, government officials, uh, different country leaders, I mean, inside Europe, right? Central bank representatives. So Europeans mostly are law-abiding citizens, so they were not sure how things will unfold. At some point, there was even a suggestion to just outright ban all digital assets backed by fiat or even all digital assets whatsoever. So quite happy with the actual form of the document that came along. And again, any every time regulation comes in and there are clear rules, the market expands just because there are more people who are willing to try it out, to transact inside the new marketplace. And then like I said, initially, since there is a run on a bank or regulatory uncertainty in the United States, more and more people would be willing, if not fully switch, but to diversify. And you are, think, you are talking about 100 billion market now. So US dollar stablecoin market is definitely a multi-dozen billion market. Just think of uh, it 
not completely switching, but 10% say diversifying into the European product. So you will instantly have a hundred X growth of the euro denominated stablecoin marketplace. Well, won't you think there are certain restrictions on, let's say, regular e-money tokens, stronger restrictions on significant e-money tokens, which have like a $5 billion market cap and a couple of other conditions need to be met. Even for a regular stable coin, you have to open an office, you have to have either be a credit institute in, in EU or to have an e-money license. Also, there are capital reserve requirements, ETC. You said it would open up the market. Don't you think that that rather kicks the small projects out of the market? Exactly. This is what uh, will happen. The barriers will rise. The cost of entry will massively inflate. And all small projects will have to either merge or shut down. But this happens in every regulatory environment. It just raises the bar. Uh, again, I'm not saying Amica is perfect. I'm just saying it's the way forward. And yes, there will be capital requirement, but I'm sure the investors will be lining up to fund uh, the successful uh, product in this space who will be raising money to fulfill the capital requirements. Because with, with this environment, with these interest rates, it's a license to print money. If we think about this, let's say, future competitive environment, how could this look like? I mean, smaller projects might be kind of erased, but there might be banks big European banks entering the scene. There might be even big industry companies bringing their own stable coin on the market. I don't know, maybe a couple of years, PayPal also wants to enter the, the European market. How do you see this competitive landscape? Will there be a, a couple of big European banks playing a role in there in the future? So as you can see, there are several players who want to enter the space. And this is because they see the opportunity. They see the potential profit. This is the way capitalism works. People anticipate to receive some profit out of this business initiative, and then they enter the competition. And then the market decides which product is the best, voting with their cash. Over the years, we managed to outmaneuver the competition. I mean, our team has been taking all the necessary product components really seriously. And I think we are by far the largest and I think at least two years ahead of every, every other project out there. But I am a libertarian and capitalist, so I really like to see competitors enter the space, see what they use as their product features to compete and implement and evolve my product. So I'm a very competitive person. We are all rolling out two major updates within the next months. So I'm quite proud of where we are now and the team I have built. So it's a good thing people are entering the marketplace. That means the market will expand. Okay. As we come more or less to the end of the interview, we normally have a golden question. Honestly speaking, I have two golden questions for you. You can either choose or I ask you both. One is on CBDCs and the other one is on foreign exchange and stable coins. Do you prefer any of, of the two options? Both. I will provide a very valuable insight. Okay, if the Euro-based stablecoin market gets enough liquidity, it will be very attractive for foreign exchange, right? So exchanging any Euro-based stablecoin with any of the big US-based stablecoins. Do you see this as well? And how would you size the market? Not 100% quantitatively, but, but what kind of volumes are we talking about in the FX context? 
Again, very good question, because this is the market to disrupt. The global effects market remains to be one of the most non-transparent ones, because it works under this ref quote system. And funny enough, the bank may still not honor the quote they provided to you. So you trade with a big bank, you open up a online or Bloomberg chat and ask them to quote you a hundred million, 50 million worth of euro dollar trade. And, and they can fail to honor the code they gave you. What's different in DeFi, and yes, it's so small right now. It's like, yeah, you could trade a couple million, but not in a range of billions, of course. But what's disruptive is that, first of all, you can see the actual market. You can see the market depth. You can see the slippage. You can see the liquidity that it's there. And second, it works 24-7 without any market holidays, bank holidays, or anything. So... Imagine there is some positive economical news coming out over the weekend from Europe versus the United States, for example, right? And then you could trade that through the Euro stablecoin market on chain. You could buy some Euro S and then when the market opens up on Monday, traditional capital market, you will capitalize on it. So this is very powerful. I mean, you still have compared to the underlying fiat currency a kind of volatility, a kind of spread if you look at stablecoins. Okay, everyone tries to hold it more or less at par, but for large FX transactions, even small margins make a difference. Do you think that wouldn't be an inhibitor or a barrier to these FX markets to take up? Well, the well, blockchain scales, right? So you've got uh, layer two solutions coming online, so transaction cost uh, decreases. And then the market to disrupt is just so juicy, just to give you some example. In United Arab Emirates, for example, to trade euro dollar through a bank, you could pay 5% spread, 6% spread. Outside market hours, it could be even 9% spread. I mean, I'm talking retail rates that you get in the banking app. So connecting to your wallet to a DeFi router, you could get now, today, 20, 30 basis points spread on a couple hundred thousand or even a million euro dollar trade. So it's already 10 times more competitive within some uh, regional markets that are mm -hmm. quite restrictive. And it will improve. So technology in DeFi continues to move forward regardless of the crypto winter. Okay. My second golden question is maybe one which you kind of anticipate. What's your view on CBDCs in general and the digital euro in, in particular? Uh, will private stable coins or the digital euro win the race? Or, or is it more a kind of coexistence, friendly or unfriendly? Yeah, it's Whatever. a big misperception. So people don't understand it's different markets. Uh, digital euro slash CBDC is a replacement for physical metal coins. First of all, it will take years to be established because it has to be enabled across all 27 member states. It has to be legal tender everywhere. Uh, without that, it's not possible to start operating. ACB has a mandate to provide a legal tender for purchasing goods and services. And imagine all the technical complexities uh, installing these instruments in some distant villages, in some Western European countries where, or Eastern ones where there is no internet, for example, or electricity. So just one thing. Second thing is it will not compete the CBDC, I mean, with the commercial bank money market instruments. So nobody will be able to put more than 300 or 500 euros to that CBDC account. 
In fact, if you read the current paper from the ECB, they already suggested that the limit will be 3,000 euro per account. But I anticipate the banking lobby will decrease it even lower. So in the final version, you can expect a few hundred euros worth of cap per account. So it's a pure replacement of metal coins you pay for parking or for trolleys in the grocery store. And then it's a big question whether there's any really attractive use case compared to what you can do with Apple Pay and Google Pay already. But I mean, there is the wholesale CBDC business as well. So interbanking stuff. How do you see that? That's already operational. You don't need to tokenize that. Target 2 is already working. You can move. I mean, euro is and dollar is already digital. Banks move money between each other in a digital form. They don't send mules uh, with cash, right? So that, that's already operational. You don't need an, an actual token version of it. Wholesale part will be figured out and uh, will compete in the public space for the product that is accessible for consumers in Europe and beyond. Gregory, that was a truly enlightening discussion and how stablecoin business works in general. You gave some good insights on stasis and what we can expect uh, for the future of the Euro stablecoin. I assume you are more on the bright and shiny side than on the stay shiny side. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Gregory. Thank you for having me. Dear listeners, we hope you enjoyed this talk. If you like the content, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform. Stay tuned and stay loyal to the Untitled Investment Talk the podcast about all things digital assets. All signal, no noise. 